Hi, I'm Margie and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. So after a small summer hiatus, we are back with a bang. What a guest. This is slightly longer than normal as there was so much to talk about, but seeing as we've had a month's break, I hope that's okay. Thank you for all your lovely messages over the summer and your iTunes reviews. It honestly makes my day. Thank you so much. And it feels great to be back. There is a lot covered in this one. As we bonded over our love of chicken Kiev, potatoes and butter, we discussed the important topic of food banks and how Jack will never choose between food and politics. So settle down, relax and let's begin. My guest today is Jack Monroe. Jack made her name as a food blogger, writing the recipes she created with the £10 a week she had to feed both her and her young son. The recipes Jack created were both cost-effective and delicious, and they provided such a crucial service to so many people. Jack's recipes are healthy, delicious, and importantly, varied. Jack now has millions of visitors to her blog, has written three best-selling cookbooks, and is now a well-respected journalist, campaigner, and activist. Welcome, Jack. Hiya. Hi. I'm so happy to have you on Desert Island Dishes, and I remember so clearly the first time I came across you. I was in the car, and I was listening to Women's Hour. It must have been back in 2014, and you were talking about making the most delicious-sounding falafels, which I literally ran home and made straight away. Oh, marvellous. That was in that little woman's hour gas cooker that they had in the studio. <laughs> I am amazed that it hasn't set the whole thing on fire before. They actually auctioned it off a couple of years ago. Oh, really? So many of us like <laughs> have cooked on that cooker. We had like a little Twitter morning moment of like, oh, but we're never going to be able to do it again. They've actually installed, I think they've installed a proper cooker in the woman's hour studio now. And we're like, it was distraught because part of the joy of doing that is standing there with an open flame surrounded yeah. by electrical equipment <laughs> with like loads of paperwork around you trying not to kill anyone it's it's just I mean it's fun it's and and so much more fun than you think like a stoic stuffy radio 4 program should be because you're like I, I need to deep fry goods on an open flame in a radio studio <laughs> I love that it's so makeshift I you wouldn't get that impression oh, yeah, it's, listening it's to it like cooking in a field hospital but with <laughs> people with posher accents it's like yeah amazing and um this this word is overused but i'm gonna i'm gonna use it what a journey you've been on jack because (laughs) are you able to look back on your incredible accomplishments and sort of reflect or is that not really in your nature well i mean i've got I've got an awards shelf. This sounds so <gasps> knobby, but I've got an awards shelf in my hallway that they're just there, really, because they were overtaking the house. And that makes me sound like I'm bragging, but I have one that was using as a doorstop and I put the <laughs> obligatory one in the loo and then there was a couple of certificates on the wall and and I started to overtake. And I was like, actually, I just want to put all my accomplishments yeah. in one place where I have to float past them on a morning, like daily basis as I go to brush my teeth in the morning. I can go, here I am with my toothbrush. I've done some good stuff in my life, actually that's nice and it sort of gives me a little boost for the day I think that's very healthy you know and it is because and it's not about thinking I'm brilliant because I really don't think I'm brilliant in the slightest I mean to bring me back down to earth with a bump my eight-year-old turned around to me a couple of days ago as uh, he also walks past that shelf on a daily basis and he went mummy you haven't won anything since 2015 (laughs) 
That's so, um, so yes, yeah, so anytime I do think that I'm doing actually okay for myself, there is a small eight-year-old voice in my ear telling me that actually I need to do better <laughs> because there's been a gap in my life where I haven't done anything at all, apparently. And well, I'm we- like, well, that's just nice, isn't it? So yeah, I, you know, I, I can look at the things that I've accomplished and know that I've, I've done something, but actually more important than a shelf full of gongs, which is nice to have is the folders and folders and folders I have of letters from people who have read my books or taught themselves to cook or got out of a desperate situation or, you know, or just felt compelled to write in some way or another. And I started to compile those as antidotes to trolls and online abuse. So that any time that that would get too overwhelming and I would start to like spiral into sort of darkness and depression, I would sit down with this folder and I would read people's stories that they have sent me. And I would go, actually, what I do is important. It's valuable. It's valuable to Carol. It's valuable to Sharon. It's valuable to Martha. It's valuable to all of these thousands of people who have taken time out of their day to let me know and that's the thing that keeps me going and doing what I do every mm-hmm. single day. And it's like, yeah, so actually my son can, you know, <laughs> sneer at me slightly for not having anything new to polish in the last few years. But actually those letters come in Definitely. on a daily basis. That's and amazing. That's, that's what I feel I've accomplished. Yeah, that's what it's all about. That's incredible. I know you're of Cypriot heritage and therefore you say that you have no concept of portion control, which sounds <laughs> right up my street. Let's talk about the first desert island dish. And that's a dish that most reminds you of your childhood. The dish that most reminds me of my childhood is actually a Cypriot recipe. Um, and it's called Afga Lemono Soup. I was going to ask you about my, that. <laughs> my mum or my dad, because both of them did an equal share of cooking um, as I was growing up. My mum may be 55% to her dad's 45% okay. of cooking. <laughs> um, hi, mum. <laughs> and it's basically, it's um, a Greek egg, rice and lemon soup. So avgo egg, lemon, oh, lemon. And you would make it from the carcass of a chicken of a Sunday roast, boil it up to make this really thick, unctuous stock that all the remaining chicken would fall off. You lift out the chicken carcass, you put rice in it, you beat a couple of eggs into it, you season it, salt, pepper, a lot of lemon juice, and you just let it cook. There was no health and safety when I was a child because it just wasn't a thing, was it? So this warm (laughs) rice and chicken meal would sit on the back of the oven for days uh, and none of us died. Um, It's interesting that, isn't it? Yeah, you know. And nowadays I I find myself writing recipes and I'm like, you must cool your rice properly and put it in the fridge and not reheat it more than once. And I'm just like, man, I ate rice that been sitting on the counter for three days as a kid. (laughs) I'm okay. Everything was fine. But yeah, so Avka Lemono Soup and... It's a recipe that I, I I cook without the chicken these days because I don't eat meat in, in my household. But it's it's comforting, it's rich, it's full of protein, it's it's absolutely perfect for when you're ill. We would eat dinner and still have a massive bowl of it before we went to bed, and it's just it's just the simplest but most perfect, homely, delicious meal and my parents refused point blank to teach me how to cook it oh, so we're like if you want to have lemon soup you come round to your mum's oh I like it. and I was I like, like yeah yeah if, if you need it you come to me for it and I'm like well I've taught myself to cook it now so um <laughs> no but that's sorry so about that <laughs> but this is kind of my job and I needed the recipe um and my dad grudgingly conceded that mine was quite good <laughs> 
High praise indeed. Yes, I know. I was like, well, well, phew. (laughs) I mean, thank goodness for that four ingredient meal that I managed to concoct. (laughs) (laughs) You've also said that your mum makes the best risotto in the world, which is a big claim. (laughs) (laughs) So my mum's risotto is the best risotto in the world because it's my mum's. Okay. It's also not a risotto. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's nothing like a risotto. It's rice cooked in beef stock with a tin of tomatoes flung over the top of it. Okay. Some cooked mushrooms folded through it and a chicken Kiev on top. Oh, oh and that wow. Is, that is, you know, <laughs> she had this great big electric pan that she, a huge electric frying pan, but she would just put the rice in, pour the tin tomatoes over, add the beef stock, add the mushrooms and just leave it and put a lid on it. And when the lid came off, an hour later, there'd be this fluffy rice pilaf thing that she'd put like either two sausages or those little garlicky chicken Kievs oh, on top. Yeah. And we would request that as kids. We ate a lot of rice as kids when I was a kid because my parents were foster carers. So they had a revolving door of children in and out of their house at any given time. So we didn't really have sit down, here's your portion of food. We had like Cyprian Nana style. Yeah. <laughs> here's a great big plate of food, have some of it. And it needed to be divisible by however many people were going to be at the table at any given time. Yeah, that's so, perfect. One yeah, pot. Basically, one pot, big things, mostly made of rice, basically. Yeah. Also, that's- putting a chicken Kiev on the top, how can oh, you go wrong? <laughs> See, chicken Kievs are so underrated. They are. They are, they are the epitome of brilliant food. I mean, yeah. and as I say, I don't, I don't eat meat anymore and I am, I'm desperately scrabbling for a vegetarian alternative to a chicken Kiev. Yeah. That is garlicky, buttery, got slightly meaty edge to it, bread crumbs within an inch of its life and just tastes like comfort. It's the way they burst when you bite into them. Oh, it's just so good. I mean, nothing, nothing can beat it. And if you get a slightly more expensive chicken Kiev and it's got like a thick, creamy sauce instead of like a pooling slob of butter, it's such a disappointment. Yeah. Because you don't want that. You want it to literally hit you in the face. Yeah. Being fan- like chicken Kiev is not a time to be fancy, is it? No, it's not. It's definitely not a time. To be fancy. <laughs> but that is my next. Is my next mission is to is to perfect a Kiev. Yes, okay, and, I, well, and I will do it. <laughs> stay tuned. The second desert island dish. What's the first dish that you learned to cook? It would have been in food tech at GCSE because I didn't really get in the kitchen before then. And I mean, I did a bit of cooking at Girls Brigade. I used to go to Girls Brigade when I was yeah. a kid. Mum had a house all of us, so we were all like, packed off to various clubs to get out of her hair and things. So, you know, Girls Brigade, we went to singing lessons and stuff like that. And it was just like, out you go, out there, I'll sell my hair. And there's an awful lot of you. Just <laughs> yeah, so we did things like peppermint creams and like crumpet pizzas and stuff. But the first thing I remember cooking and being proud of was this plum and hazelnut tart. Ooh. That was from a cookbook that I still have because I went to my parents and demanded it out of nostalgia. And also I need this. So it was called Cooking for Beginners and it was an Usborne book and it was like a flip book. And my son keeps asking if he can have it. And I'm like, no, it's my book. (laughs) (laughs) You you can read it, but put it back. Yeah. Maybe Um, if he's a bit nicer about your awards, he can have it. Well, (laughs) exactly. Um, and uh, no, I'm too busy winning awards to supervise you cooking. <laughs> um, yeah, so and it's it was basically just a ring of short crust pastry with um, plums in cinnamon, like sliced plums in cinnamon, toasted hazelnuts put in. The plums would turn to a kind of jam as it cooked with these little crunchy bit of hazelnuts. But you, the way you fold the pastry round, all the way around, it was like it pleated all the way around. Yeah, and then spr- like egg glaze sprinkled with sugar. It's actually really really simple recipe, but. I cooked it and I made it 
and it looked exactly like the picture. And it was this picture of this fancy tart in this recipe book. And there's me, aged about 12 or 13. And I made what looked like a really fancy tart. And I was like, I've got no pastry skills. I've still got no pastry <laughs> skills. I use a cookie cutter to make the tops of my pies because I just can't be bothered with, with you know, with pastry in general. And it looks I'd cool. made the pastry for myself and I was really proud of it. And it held together and it didn't fall apart, which is, was a fluke because I've barely been able to do it again since. And it looked good and it tasted delicious and it looked super fancy. And my cooking teacher, um, I had three, she was called Miss Caddick. And she came over and she looked at it and she was like, oh, that looks brilliant. And I was like, I'm good at something. I can do a thing. Look at this thing I can do. And, and cooking at school was just something that I absolutely loved because I was like, I went to an all-girls grammar school. I was pretty rubbish at everything. I was good at sport, um, but I was too lazy to be bothered about it. And I was good at English. Yeah, I was going to say, I just, you must have been good at English. I was good at English, but I didn't apply myself to anything because I was I didn't fit in at school. And then I found this one thing that I was actually pretty good at. And I was like, I'm going to do this because I like eating and I like making stuff and I'm going to make stuff and I'm going to eat it. Uh, and that works for me. Yeah, that's... And I've been doing it ever since. <laughs> that sounds like the perfect career path. Let's go back in time to, to when it all started. So back in 2011... You had a job that you loved in a fire service call station. You had a nice flat. You had a regular organic vegetable box. And then you had a child. And work became completely inflexible with your hours. And it soon became unmanageable. Is it true that you amassed over 300 job applications in that time? Yeah, and they're just the ones that I um, that I counted. Like I literally applied for every single job that I could see going. Everything on the job centre website, I applied for. I was, I applied for absolutely everything going. I applied to be a traffic warden. I applied to be a forklift truck driver because back in those days they would train you and give you a license. Yeah. Um. I applied to work in warehouses. I applied to work in absolutely everything. I was like, I applied to be a quick fit mechanic. And I was like, because I was like, I could do that. You know, yeah. I I could do at this point. I could do anything. Like, and it and it was just it was the lack of flexible working that was the problem. I found that if I put on my application forms that I was a mother, I didn't get a call. Uh, if I put on the application forms, if I didn't disclose my status as a parent, I would get invited to interviews. But that those interviews, I would have to disclose my status yeah. as a parent and I wouldn't get invited back. I mean, it's just and extraordinary, isn't it? I think that employers just assume if you've got a child, you're going to be inflexible. You're going to be taking time off. You're going to be, if your kid's sick, you can't come to work. And I'm like... Mate, I need a job. And yeah. I need a job I, I will turn up to every day because I need to feed and clothe this tiny human that I'm responsible for. Yeah. Um, and also and- having a child isn't like an extraordinary thing. It's something that so many people have children and it's amazing that it can be so rigid and unflexible when it's something that applies to so many people. Yeah, but we are talking about seven years ago. So before workplaces, I think, were really required to be more flexible, before paternity leave became more flexible, before um, like mother's rights in the workplace were really, you know, given a level of status that they deserve. Because, I mean, I, w- I left the fire service and there were, I mean, 98% of my colleagues were men. Yeah. So the flexible working strategies and parental leave strategies, they didn't exist. They were there on paper. But if you tried to put them into practice, you were told you were being difficult. Yeah. And most of my colleagues who were women, who had children, had male partners who worked the opposite shift pattern to them. And they would literally do the handover at the fire station. So they'd bring the kids to work. His blue watch would come off duty, bring the kids to work. Red watch mum would pick the kids up and take them home. 
So, so you'd be like, and it was literally, I was given it as a piece of career advice by one of my colleagues. You just need to marry a firefighter on Blue Watch. Oh I was like, goodness. how about I know them all and no. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then a bit of a watershed moment came for you when you saw a headline in your local paper saying, druggies, drunks and single mums are ruining our town. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so that was a local conservative councillor whose family own a big coffee shop at one end of High Street. And I was in my dad's car. I can't remember where he was taking me or where we were going or what we were up to. And I saw it on the A-board outside the news agents. And I was like, stop. I'm going to go and get paper. <laughs> Reverse. <laughs> okay. Got out, went and got a paper. I was fuming. I literally stormed into this little news agent I've never been in in my life. Picked up three copies of the paper, went back sat there reading it in a fury, went home, typed a, a letter to the local paper that was so outraged, they print, they serialised oh. it in three parts. So oh three goodness. separate days because it was so long and so <laughs> angry. And I was like, you know, nobody had an issue with single mothers after the Second World War when you killed all their fathers. And, yeah. you know, like, and I was so just absolutely livid. And I thought, I, I need to get involved. I was like, I was really fired up. And I was like, well, what I need to do is I need to go to local council meetings. I need to see who these people are that are making these decisions that negatively impact my life. And I need to basically show them who I am as well, because there's nobody who is speaking on behalf of me and on behalf of other single mums that And I wasn't nominating myself spokesperson. I wanted to go and have a look. Yeah. I wanted to go and see who these people were that were shutting libraries, shutting children's centres and saying that single mums were you know, all drug addicts and drunks. Yeah, it's outrageous. And, so, and, and her point was, she, she claims, her point was that she said that um, single mums were driving business away from the high street because we don't have a lot of money to spend. <laughs> and my counterpoint to that was actually, we don't have the money to go anywhere else. So all of our money actually goes into the high street yeah. because we are bumming around those coffee shops all day with our children because we can't go to Lakeside or Blue Water or the, or away on holidays. So we are literally all the money that we get, whether it's in benefits or in income, it's being poured straight back into the local economy. We are our own micro economy. Yeah. Um, so actually, we are your clients. We are spending money in your coffee shop. We didn't after that. <laughs> <laughs> and so this this ignited a passion that then you then started blogging, didn't you? When blogging wasn't really a sort of what it is today. Yeah, I was. I started to write an online blog about the inner machinations of um, the local council meetings. So I went to the development control committees and I went to all the council meetings and I started to get stuff published in the local paper. I mean, I cringe now. I was such an anorak. I was literally <laughs> sit there making furious notes and then the politics reporter from the local paper would be asking to borrow my notes. I'd be like, oh, you could do your own job. That would be nice. Um, but that led to um, when the local paper then wanted, were looking for a trainee reporter, I marched straight into the editor's office having been rejected from 300 other job applications. I went, hello, I'd like that job. We haven't got any journalism qualifications. Someone else has stopped you printing my stuff for the last year with a byline on it. Oh, yeah. I want that job. And they sent me away. They were like, we can't really, we're looking for someone who's qualified. Well, qualify me then. And I was, I was so desperate for work that I was like, no, I, I, I've seen something I can do. Yeah. I'm going to do it. And they said, you know, we'll actually, we all had a discussion afterwards and you did exactly what, we want from a journalist which is you walked into a room knowing that you wanted something and you weren't going to leave until you'd got it and I was like that's yeah amazing. That's... and then three months three or four months later I left them and went to the Guardian so it's 
I was like, thank you very much for taking yeah. a chance on me. Bye. Bye then. <laughs> Sorry. See who's <laughs> qualified now. Yeah, but, it's, but it's, you know, but I, I gained some great skills at that paper. Um, it, it's kept my love of local journalism and it, it's, it taught me a lot about how to write, how to report. Yeah. And, and I, and I, I, you know, they gave me my first foot up into basically news and media yeah. by taking a chance on this spunky little kid that walked into their office and went, give me a job. <laughs> and it was, I was so grateful for it. Let's pause there briefly just to talk about the next Desert Island dish. And that is the best dish you've ever eaten. I've eaten a lot of food. <laughs> <laughs> so this is actually a very difficult question because I eat a lot of great food. Yeah. I, I couldn't possibly say. I, 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 sorry, I know that's a really terrible answer to a really great question, but I couldn't possibly say. I've eaten a lot of great food. Usually, it's the last thing I've eaten. Like, okay. what was you know? What was what, the last great thing you ate? What did I cook recently that was really, really good? <laughs> I love that you're going to pick something that you made. Oh my god! So a couple of a couple of days ago. I sometimes, I get carried away, right? And I don't know if I'm giving that impression at all, <laughs> um, being that I'm such a, a master of self-control and, you know, sometimes I get ideas and they worm their way into my head and I know they're not going to go away until I've, I've done them. And I was lying in bed and I was like, potatoes. I like potatoes. I've been eating a lot of potatoes lately. I was like, Dofu my potatoes. Dofu my potatoes in a pie. Dofu my potatoes in a suet crust pie. Dofu my potatoes in a suet crust pie with a mushroom gravy. Ooh. And I was like, it's 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> <laughs> and I lay down in bed and I rolled over and I was like, go to sleep, do it in the morning. Rest it down, do it in the morning. And this little voice in my head, like a tray, is going, Dofu my potatoes in a suet crust pie. <laughs> go to bed. So I was like, okay, well... I'll make the potatoes and I'll make the pastry and I'll assemble it into a pie. So I to get out of bed. <laughs> out of bed I went. Mushrooms, gravy, dough from potatoes, pie, pie crust. Yum. Went back to bed. I was like, right, chilling the pie crust. There's the potatoes on the side. There's the gravy. I'll assemble it into a pie in the morning. It's ready for breakfast. Oh my God. It, it's literally, it was literally a dough from potato suet crust pie with a mushroom and red wine gravy. Sounds and really good. It's, it's potatoes and cheese and mushrooms and wine in a pie that's made of fat. Yeah. And it was just love? phenomenally good. But I was also like, I can't put this on my website because it's not a, it's, it is a very cheap recipe because I've done the costings for it. You know, suet crust pastry costs next to nothing to make. Mushrooms are cheap. Potatoes are cheap. But how do you brand a five mushroom dauphinois potato suet crust pie to an audience that relies on food banks? Mm. You don't. Yeah, that's So true. I was like, so I'm like, right, potato pie then, <laughs> right? This is a potato. At the end of the day, it's a potato pie. Yeah. So strip out the suet crust, leave it as a tip, make it with potatoes, take out the five mushroom gravy, ch- chuck a load of bisto in it, took a layer of mushrooms over the top if you want it. And here's, so here's the basics of the recipe, which is a potato pie and it's phenomenal. Yum. But if you want to make it fancy, here's how to make it fancy. And I ate that pie for three days running. I literally ate nothing but that pie. I was like. That, that was a good three days. Oh, it was great. It was great cold. It was great warm. It was it's just all the best ideas happen at night they do and i've had i've had quite a lot of those moments where i've just been lying in bed and just pondering and it's like an active rest period where your brain is finally turning off and it's switching off and you're like oh this is nice i can go to sleep now 
Dothenwall pie. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, why can't I have these ideas when I'm sitting on my desk, literally picking my forehead, going, what can I do today? What can I do today? Oh, yeah, it's always the way, isn't it? Yeah. Ne- but it's the thing about being comes. creative is you, it, your, your inspiration comes when you're, you know, when you've been eating lettuce for a week because you're like, oh God, I've got a photo shoot. And then, and then a voice in your ear goes, what you really need is a pie. <laughs> you're like, so oh, true. <laughs> so you started your blog where you wrote about all sorts of things from politics to recipes, but it, it really was the recipes that people, that really resonated with people, wasn't it? Yeah. And, and <laughs> my friend Matt was doing um, the annual Live Below the Line Challenge where you live off a pound a day to raise money for charity. And it's a really well-meaning and well-thought-out campaign. There are a lot of other campaigns like it that don't quite hit the mark, but I really support Live Below the Line. I've done it myself a few times. And he came to me and he said, in a completely non-offensive way, can you help me with these recipes? Because this is basically how you live. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It sounds terrible. (laughs) But actually, he was like, but you know, but you're an expert in this. And I can't, I'm I'm living off smart-priced sausages and I'm feeling really ill. Can can you give me a hand? And I was like, yeah, okay, I'll give you a hand. So I, I cooked some recipes. And the first one was a carrot and carrot, carrot and lentil soup, I think. Carrot, cumin and kidney bean soup. And it was 17p a portion. And I wrote it and I put it on my blog as a sort of, oh, my friend's doing the low line challenge. And this is also a recipe that I cook for myself. So if anyone else finds it useful, here you go. And then overnight, I went from having like 13 readers who would like log in and see what decisions have been made in the development control committee <laughs> to hundreds of people suddenly looking at this really cheap soup. And I was like, why aren't you all interested yeah. in my incisive take on local politics? <laughs> um, what, that is always the way. Soup recipe I nicked from the BBC Good Food website. I mean, what, what is wrong with you people? Um, and, but actually I, I enjoy cooking and always have and enjoyed writing and something there shifted. I was like, well, this is clearly something that people need. Yeah. So, or one. So I started to, as I was cooking and feeding myself, I started to write about it. And I don't know why I hadn't done it before then, but it then gave me a purpose. I wasn't writing around 12 weekly council meeting cycles. I could do it every day. Yeah. And then my blog opened up and became more confessional, more about the realities of being a single mum living on the breadline. And it gave me something to do, really. I was like, it's like a job. I mean, no one's paying me for it, but it's... It's like a job. Yeah. And and as you say, you'd hit upon something <laughs> that people really needed. How did it then go from writing the blog to then being a Guardian columnist? How did that happen? Well, the Guardian just rang up and, you know, the, as newspapers do, they spy a hot trend and they go, oh, will you come and do, will you do this? And they literally offered me a recipe column. They went, so cool. We'd like you to do a recipe column for us. I was like, what for my misery food? <laughs> um, but misery food was exactly what they wanted. So, and I read somewhere that when you started the recipes, one of your friends said, "Oh, you should leave that to Jamie Oliver because who's going to listen to you?" Yeah, I thought that was really interesting because it's often the people around you that find it hard when sort of things change for you, isn't it? Yeah, someone some, someone did literally say that. One of my friends said, "Oh, well, no one's going to listen to you." And we should, you know, leave it to people who know what they're doing. And I was like, well, I know what I'm doing. I'm I'm on the breadline trying to feed a kid and I can write about it. And if people want to listen, they want to listen. And if they don't, scroll on by it. So it's not any skin off anyone else's nose. And I think that it's always interesting. There are a lot of Jamie comparisons and have been throughout my career, which I find flattering, you know, but we're both from Essex, both a bit gobby. You know, we we both do simple good food. 
And I, I, you know, I find it absolutely immense to be compared to someone of, of his stature who's done the work that he's done. Um, I imagine that the, um, the comparison isn't that flattering the other way around. Um, but, you know, I, I also feel like, why can't people let my work stand on its own? Why do they have to, like, pin it to a well-known man in order to legitimise mm, it? It's like, well, actually, my, my, actually, what I do is pretty good on its own. And I'm not blowing my own trumpet. It's, you know... I'm, it's got three best-selling books. You know, I, I, what I do has a place in 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 the world as it is, and there are loads of us who are writing budget recipes or writing good, cheap, simple recipes. And the more of us there are, the better. The platform is big enough for all of us. Every single person in the UK needs to feed themselves three times a day. There's enough space for us all to go out there and educate people to do so. Yeah, and um. You know, but yeah, newspapers are always very quick to like pull our cookbooks together and do like a cook-off or a Punch and Judy show and stuff. Yeah. I'm like, do you know what? Whatever sells your papers, but actually my focus isn't on am I as good as someone else or am I better than someone else or well, how does my work compare to someone else's is? Is it right and is it getting to the people it needs to get yeah, to? Yeah, you're right? doing something with purpose. Yeah, it's, it's, sort of... uh, it's, it's a mission. It's not yeah. a competition. It's, that's, a, that's a good line and I'm going to keep it. <laughs> <laughs> the, the fourth desert island dish. Jack, what's your favourite sandwich? My favourite sandwiches are my Auntie Helen's sandwiches. Hey. She lived, um, she's um, not, no longer with us, but she lived in a house in Plymouth that as kids that was our summer holiday. We would go to Auntie Helen's house in Plymouth. And she was a tiny little Cypriot lady that had geese. And the geese were called Charlie and Geraldine and they would chase us around the garden. There's epic pictures of me as a, as a child in a bright green summer dress. And a few occasions I was wrestled into one without sulking with a goose that is larger than I am, honking its way, flapping around the garden. We screaming and running away in absolute delight. Because Auntie Helen always called her geese Charlie, I just knew that, I grew up thinking geese were called Charlies. So if I saw a goose in the park, I'd be like, it's a Charlie. My mum would be like, no, it's a goose. I'd be like, what's a goose? (laughs) That's a Charlie. No, it's a goose. (laughs) But basically, um, we would all pile into my parents' car and do the six-hour drive down to Plymouth to go and stay with Helen for for like a week or so. And there was always so much food at her house and she was so lovely. And she had this huge, great big, long, narrow kitchen that was in a conservatory that was all full of light and it was really beautiful. When we all got there late in the evening, we would umpire out of the car and she would sit us all down before we went to bed and give us fried potato sandwiches with pickle in. Oh, hello. <laughs> and cheese. That sounds amazing. So it's like a potato cheese and pickle sandwich. Yes. And I wrote about these in Why my garden. Why is that Guardian not more column. of a thing? I wrote about them in my Guardian column once, and I was so furious because they they knocked them up for the uh, recipe picture, and they made it look like a crisp sandwich. And I was like, no, it was like big chunky slices of potato. And they're like, oh, we potato. We can't reshoot it. And I was like, <gasps> yeah, it's very- that, that's not my Auntie Helen sandwich. It's a very but different. It's basically thing. a basically like a thinly sliced fried potato with um, slightly melting cheese and pickle in thick white bread. And those sandwiches are to die for. And I will, I, I, they are the ultimate in comfort food. Yes. That They're just like carbs amazing. and carbs. I mean, double carb. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. I mean, and I, I'm, I'm a big fan of a carbohydrate. They are, they are my 
best friends in the kitchen. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) So you are an author, a broadcaster, a campaigner, a journalist and a food writer. You do so many different things and they all interlap. Can you tell us about the advice that you received from none other than Eamon Holmes? <laughs> I did a debate with Eamon Holmes on Sky News a couple of uh, years ago. As we know, Eamon is a sports broadcaster and, and, a, and a news guy. At the time, a lot of different well-meaning people had sat me down and gone, you need to make a decision about whether you're going to concentrate on politics or concentrate on food because retailers find you off-putting oh. because your food is so entwined with your politics. I was like, yeah, sorry, the- what? Can you just repeat that whole sentence again? Because I don't understand. It's like you're saying you need to choose whether you can have legs or arms yeah, now because, because they keep getting tangled up with each other. And that, no. And I sat there and I'd just had this row with about five different people. And I went on to this discussion with Eamon to talk about food banks. And he apologized afterwards, I think, for not being able to shoehorn a book mentioning or something like that. And I was like, Eamon, it's fine. I'm fine. I just you know everyone keeps telling me to separate my food from my politics but i can't because my food is political and my politics are all interspersed in food there's loads of cookie cutter celebrity chefs out there who are are all doing great work and great things and i love and admire an awful lot of them but there's only one me (laughs) and and if i stop talking about food banks and food poverty no one else is going to and amy just said look everyone keeps telling me i need to choose between sports and news and he said and i've spent the last few years sitting here stubbornly going i can do both i will do both and he was like do both because it's what makes you you he said and don't don't ever stop doing one or the other good old and i was like good good old good old uncle amen (laughs) it's not my uncle (laughs) but was behaving like a kindly uncle and i was like good and i had a lot of respect for him and i really liked and admired him and i was like good well you've said that's fine so that's fine and and you seem to be doing quite well out of yeah (laughs) diversifying and so and so i'm going to too and i've i just i understand why people may think that, oh God, you know, you'd sell more books if only you stopped bollocking the government. But I'm like, well, never mind. <laughs> I but, but also it's such an it's such an obvious link because you're you're saying no one should have to eat this way, but if you do, here's how I can help. Yeah, precisely. Because as soon as I become as soon as I just go, here's some cheap recipes, I'm legitimizing yeah. the reasons why people need cheap recipes in the first place. You can't go oh, well, um, here's some recipes for if you've only got a fiver left in your bank account without going, hang on, why do people only have a fiver left in their bank account? Yeah. I can't, I can't, can't... just offer us like a sticking plaster solution. No, and, and neither of those... looking at the systemic reasons as to why people are in poverty in the first place. If I was being cynical, I could go, yeah, I can just bang out cheap recipe books. Let's not solve poverty because it keeps me in a job. But that's awful. Yeah. And so I'm not going to do that because it's... I'd rather that actually... No one needed my work. I'd, I'd quite like to not have to receive letters at two o'clock in the morning from people who've had their benefits cut and yeah. have to feed their children. And I'm now sitting in my bathroom at two o'clock in the morning on the floor so as not to disturb anyone else going, what's in your store cupboard? Here's how we can devise a menu together. Because actually, I'd quite like to, you know, the, the weight of responsibility that I feel sometimes towards people who write to me in desperate situations is it's overwhelming yeah it's a lot and it's a lot of emotional responsibility and it would be really nice to have a bit less of that but actually as the days and weeks and months go on I get more and more of that because Mm. people find themselves in more and more desperate situations 
And I just think I'm not doing this because it makes me feel good. I'm doing this because people are reaching out to me for yeah. it. And I'd be a heartless ass if I just went, oh, well, that sounds awful. Run along. Here, have a book. Yeah. It's like, are, I, I can't. So you're almost definitely I'm not, not made like that. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> I know. It would be my life maybe a lot simpler if I could invoke like being a heartless ass every now and then. But <laughs> it's, it's not in my makeup, unfortunately. Let's just pause there and talk about the fifth desert island dish. And that's the dish that you eat the most often. Salt and vinegar crisps. Okay. <laughs> and any particular kind or is it just... I, I did go through a... Um, I've been through a rigorous taste testing experiment. Yes. Whereby I have literally tried ears. most salt and vinegar crisps that are available on the market. Yeah. Um, and my favourites are pop chips. Yes. Salt and vinegar pop chips. Great. Because they are really salty and vinegary. Um, discos are very, very close second. Salt and vinegar Pringles are all right, but they start to coat your tongue a bit after a while and then you can't taste the salt yeah. and vinegar as yeah, much. Yeah, they, they like. sort of like a bit so like sandpaper. pop chips are my number one salt and vinegar crisps. And they're a bit left filled. They're a bit like, whoa. They're quite, well, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but yeah, they're, they're definitely. But on a serious note, the dish I make the most often that I actually make I it eat being serious. <laughs> but honestly, I'm I cook all day most days I'm recipe testing I'm developing I'm cooking and then I'll be like friends neighbors oh god I've got like 30 portions of food kicking around so Tupperware it all up give it all away and they go oh, I didn't keep any for myself <laughs> <laughs> that's <laughs> or, when the pop chips come oh, hang on <laughs> or I'll do a whole rigorous like three or four days like testing 40 recipes and I will not want to cook for two or three days running so I will literally live off crisps and I think people think that you know, it's very easy for people to look at social media and think, I have this idyllic life. I have these long, lazy breakfasts. I have these gorgeous lunches with friends. I have these lovely dinners. Jack, don't and I'm burst just the like, bubble. And I'm just like, <laughs> no, today I ate just crisps, six bags of crisps, and I feel good about that, actually, yeah. and that's fine. But the dish I cook the most often um, for me at the moment is I'm obsessed with roast potatoes. Everyone's obsessed with roast potatoes. I am absolutely obsessed with roast potatoes. And it's like roast potatoes with a something to dip them into. So Ooh. I make like these vegetable purees, like vegetable and bean purees. So just cook them together, mash them up. So it's like a loose, runny mash with a side of roast potatoes. Mm. So I'll make this bowl of like thick, somewhere between a soup or a mash consistency. And then I top it with roast potatoes and I just eat the whole lot. And that's why I've, that's my favorite lunch thing at the moment. So it's like three or four portions of veg in a bowl but it's also roast potatoes but it's also dippable and dunkable but I don't feel too bad about it because it's loads of veg and that's my favourite I've, I've done endless varieties on it at the moment I very much like the sound <laughs> of that Jack is it true that representatives of the writer of The Wolf of Wall Street contacted you to inquire about buying the life rights to your story? Yes they did and um, you said no I don't have many regrets in my life but turning down a six figure check <laughs> for a movie about my life isn't so much a regret, but I wish I hadn't been quite so quick to just go, nope. <laughs> yeah, so what went through your mind? When... Well, because they're not my life rights, are they? Okay. They're my sons, they're my mums, they're my oh, dads, they're my friends, they're my family. I would, I will happily write a memoir and people can buy the memoir and make that into a Hollywood yeah. film. And that's great. But they do not get to go knocking on the doors of people that I love and adore and have helped. Yeah. have spent the last few years keeping out of the glare of the media because it, this, this is an absolute cesspit and... It's taken me six years and a lot of therapy and several mental breakdowns to get to a point where I'm confident and happy about talking to the press, about, you know, leaving my house in the morning, thinking that, you know, someone runs into me on the tube, I don't look like an entire fright or I'm not going to have a breakdown at them. 
And like, okay, I'm I'm in a stable and secure place that I've got through all the trolling, through all the being smeared by the mail, through all of that, and come out the other side of it. I'm not putting anyone I love in that position. So I keep my private life private. And I just think I just didn't want the risk involved. That I've got no big skeletons in my closet. I'm not scared yeah. that anyone's going to go, oh, well, have you seen these photos wearing her <laughs> underpants? Well, because you know what? I, I look good in my underpants. If anyone's got those pictures kicking around, please happily sell them. I could do with the publicity. But, um, you know, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but it's, you know, I, I just was like, no, this isn't my life to sell because my life is, as all of ours are, complexly yeah. interwoven with so many other people's lives and yeah. those things never seem to go well. But as I say, I would happily write a memoir or a play or whatever and they could base it on that and it would be great. But that, stay that, out, I'm a back garden, basically. Those <laughs> reasonings are, are very understandable and also how cool to say that you turned it down. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know... I'm, it, it it was an instant decision. Yeah. Like we'd like because if they'd have said we'd like your book rights, fine. I, I gave my book rights to Radio Four. They made a five part docudrama fiction thing about um, my first book, a girl called Jack, where they it was brilliant. They had um, June Whitfield playing my nan, and my actual nan was so made up that June Whitfield was playing her, and that she so didn't cool. mind that she'd been made to seem a little bit frosty and aloof in the thing because it was June Whitfield being her frosty and aloof herself. <laughs> Everything um, is forgiven. <laughs> and so I took them along and I introduced them to each other, and it was really nice. Jamie Winston played me, which was phenomenal, and that was fine because they did that the right way around. They said, "Here's." Here it is. You get by, and you can you can help us write the script. You can oversee it all, and that's completely different to a Hollywood director going, "Oh well, we want to just tromp through your childhood for like a few years." And no, thank you very much. Yeah, that is a very. It's a great story though, and I think it would be a brilliant film. You know, single mum on the dole starts to write a boring, miserable blog and ends up as a best-selling author. It's nice. I'm in love. It's always got a happy ending. Yeah, it's it's got everything. Yeah, it's all right. The sixth desert island dish. What is your go-to dinner party dish? I don't really have dinner parties at mine anymore. I sort of have accidental, oh God, there are people in my house expecting to be yeah. fed and there's an awful lot of you and you all seem to turn up around about meal times, and I'm not entirely sure why. Maybe it's because I feed people when that they're in my house around meal times. That um, definitely counts as dinner party. And yeah, and we end up like having a drink and having a nice time. Um, so, But like my parents' food, it needs to be something that is easy to be it can be easily thrown together yeah. in a hurry from store covered ingredients which luckily happens to be my area of expertise <laughs> so i mean as long as i've got a tin of tomatoes and a crusty old bit of bread kicking around i can make a pepper up pomodoro which is a bread crust and tomato soup i tend to make not one dinner party dish i just do like lots of bits on the side so there'll be if i've got a tin of beans kicking around i can make a quick like bean salad I've got a recipe in my new book that is an absolute crowd pleaser and I don't think it gets the credit that it deserves. What is it? Right, lasagna. Making lasagna is an absolute pain. Yeah. And if you're a single mum with one child, you are not going to stand and make a lasagna for the two of you. No, it's a labour of love. Yeah, it is a complete labour of love. So I was like, I wanted to make a lasagna that wasn't, a real ass to make, basically. So I made what I've lovingly christened the sausagna, okay. which is, <laughs> which uh, when I wrote it down, it looked like this posh, 
it looked like this really posh word, like sausage. <laughs> and I'm just like, so I've had to put in brackets next to it, sauce and ya. <laughs> like, here's how you, here's how you pronounce it. So it's not sausage. It's, I'm so it's, glad <laughs> I didn't attempt to say that before you did. It's like, or sausage or whatever. <laughs> like, no, it's sausage. It's like sausage lasagna. Basically, get some sausages, chop them up, stick them between some lasagna sheets, pour a tin of pistachio over the top, cover it in cheese, stick it in the oven. Everyone loves it because everyone likes sausages. Everyone likes pasta. Yeah, those are two facts. And it's like, there you go, these are facts. And everyone likes cheese. So it's a lasagna that you can assemble in five minutes flat. And the sausages disintegrate. So they make like a lasagna because they disintegrate into the tomatoes. So they cook like a lasagna ragu would. It's a lasagna in 20 minutes. Is this in the new book? It's in the new book, yeah. It's here, it's there. It, it looks like it's called sausage. <laughs> I, I will be giving that a go. On Desert Island Dishes, we have a cookbook corner, and I wanted to know, what is your most treasured cookbook? Kitchen by Nigella Lawson. Ooh. It's the book that taught me to cook and taught me to write and taught me to love food and to believe in myself in the kitchen. It was my, it's my best friend in the kitchen and continues to be. It's the first cookbook I ever bought for myself at full price from the Waterstones. And I took it home and I read it like a novel. I took it to bed and I read it from cover to cover. I took the recipes from it and I reworked them out of things that I could cook from my food bank parcel. A lot of my original recipes in my first book are recipes from kitchen that I've dumbed down, that I've made my own, that I've reinvented with real staple ingredients and it's a book that I absolutely adore. My relationship with that book is just, if I can ever write a book that means as much to someone as Kitchen means to me. And I wrote to Nigella and told her about how much her book had impacted my writing. Cause she sent me a message on Twitter once just saying, Oh, I love what you do. And I was like, <gasps> and I sent her this huge gushing like letter about like how important that book was to me. And she sent me every book she's written ever since. And I'm like, these are lovely. They're not kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because that book was the first cookbook that, that made me feel like I can do this. Like it was like, like a helping hand in the kitchen that I, and, and it really spoke to how I feel about my kitchen being the heart of my home. Yeah. And the recipes in it are so simple, but so delicious. And her writing style is so it's amazing. perfect. And occasionally people will say to me, oh, you write like Nigella. And I'm like, yeah, she, I basically copy her work. <laughs> because I well, love what her. A comp- so what there a we go. <laughs> Both ways round. We're on to the final seventh Desert Island dish. What's the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the Desert Island? How long am I going to be there for? <laughs> well, who knows? I don't. <laughs> no it would have to be something sweet and cakey because i imagine there's not very much scope for cake on a desert island is there very and good point. I'm, I'm generally a very savory person but i do like the odd cake yeah when i say odd i mean i like cake yeah a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, i mean after all it contains butter yeah exactly butter <laughs> sugar all the great things in the world I'm the last person championing, standing here going, white flour, butter, sugar, yes. As everyone else around me is going, matcha tea, kombucha, turmeric lattes. <laughs> no, I'm, like, I'm with sugar, you. Sugar, fat, butter. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, some kind of cakey nonsense, some big, fat, juicy, chocolatey, berry cake brownie. Actually, brownies, there's brownies in here that I love. And I made them for my birthday for myself because I never bothered to make brownies because they're such a 
like school fair mum thing and I'm not school fair mum. And, you know, and there, speaking of which, Cassie also wrote to me once saying that, um, can I, can I use your brownie recipe in my cookbook? Because, um, I cook them for my school fair all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there you go. School fair mum brownies. Um, but they are made with Guinness. They're Guinness chocolate brownies. And I made them for myself for my birthday. So my birthday's on St. Patrick's Day. And I was like, I need to do something with Guinness for my birthday as a recipe thing. But I wanted brownies. Can I put Guinness in brownies? I bet I can. And I made them and they are phenomenal. So That's I would a great make idea. Tray of Guinness brownies and I would eat them all. And then I'd go to the desert island, fat and happy and able to live off my reserves for quite some time. <laughs> Sounds like a good plan to me. Thank you so much, Jack Monroe. Those were your Desert Island dishes. Thank you very much. So there we are. Another delicious day of Desert Island dishes. If you aren't craving salt and vinegar crisps or something with potatoes, can we even be friends? (laughs) If you're listening and you haven't yet left a review, please do. It only takes a few seconds and it really helps others to find the show, which is obviously great. I will see you next week with another cracking guest. And in the meantime, come and find me on Instagram at Margie Nomura. And for lots of easy, delicious recipe ideas, head to www.desertislanddishes.co. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.